Hello and welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason, and this is part eight of our exploration of the book of Ruth. If you are interested in taking the conversation deeper, we will have discussion guides available for all of our patrons. To become a patron, you just go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, search Searching the Sacred, and become a patron of our podcast, and we will make sure that you get the discussion guides for all of these episodes as we navigate our way through the dynamic book of Ruth. All right, now on to this episode. Okay, do we need to set aside our weird feels about like human sexuality in the Bible to like go after this text? Or like, like, I don't, this is where I get a little bit like, well, <laughs> like there's a part of me that's like, well, is, there, here's, is there anything even wrong with this? Like, okay. So here's, like, here's our own personal hangups. Delicious question that I think that I'm going to bring, this brings me to Pedrig, Pedrig, Pedrig Otwama. I, I'm, I'm butchering his name. I feel so bad. He's, he's a, he's a wonderful poet and theologian from Ireland. And I just don't know how to say an Irish name. Do you think that's right? Either of you, Padraig? Padraig? That's Padraig Otwama. Is that how you say it? Okay. Sorry, everybody. I hope he Uh, listens to this one day. (laughs) (laughs) So, and he co-wrote a book on Ruth and had a beautiful thing to say about towards what Lisa just asked. And I think that it's a great place to start as we talk about the feet, as we talk about this question that a couple questions that Jason asked about this moment in time and the, and the sexuality of this and the, is to ask, why is it that we care about that here? So uh, I'm just going to quote, I'm going to read from his book. If they had sex, would their lives have been poisoned? Or would their hope for a modified Leverite marriage be rendered invalid? What do we need to be true? Would the reputation of Ruth and Boaz suffer if it seemed they had consummated that night? Or would the reputation of Ruth suffer more than that of Boaz? Why is it that women's purity is more often a topic for public discussion than men's? And why, when discussing matters of borders, belonging, politics, and law, do groups become so interested in sex and purity? So if we get hung up on that here, what I want to challenge us to is, do we equally get hung up on that every place in the Bible where sex is in question? Or is it revealing a bias we have about women or about marginalized groups or about borders, belonging, right and wrong law that's revealing something else in that question that we have? I was just curious about the feet. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We can cut that out. <laughs> I think that's a really, really important question. Which I want to, I want to name. I did not come up with that question. That's why I was trying to, even though I was butchering his name, name Padre Gotwama because he 
is from Ireland where there is more issues of boarding and borders and belonging marginalized groups than I encounter. His Corey Mila community is, is actively engaged in these questions of borders and belonging in a way I am not. And so he saw this question. I did not. I would just assume if I was asking the question about the sex of that night, that it was a good question. It's not that it's a bad question. I just want to get underneath the biases that might be there when we're asking the question. Cause I thought that was just so delicious when I read it. Like I think about how, when we talk about David being a man after God's own heart, how often we say something like we, we say the Bathsheba incident or we'll, we'll account for Bathsheba being a part of a messy part of that story. But it doesn't seem to bother us in terms of like, we see that God forgives him, that he redeems and like, it doesn't affect his trajectory in many of our eyes. Doesn't affect a lot of people's trajectory. I mean, if I'm going to be honest, like that feels actually fairly accurate for a lot of things that we still wrestle with. I think for me, the, the, for me right now, the wrestle is, is like this is a tension of like honoring the story that's there, but cause I'm going to read in my stuff, whatever my stuff is. And so like, for me, the question around like women and sex work is a very different conversation than, than it would have been 20 years ago. Um, and not that that's what's happening here, but if, if my, if my ideas have shifted so much over time, then I just don't know that I have the answer. I might have an answer or a thought about what's happening or what would be the ramifications. I think if I'm honest, like, I think it's always a little bit like, ooh, to see a woman being sexually aggressive in the Bible feels that that's not a common story. I mean, and in some ways, women get attached to sexuality all, like a lot in the text. Like, whether it's through, yeah, all, lots of different reasons. Um, so it's like it's it's there. We just don't actually. What's true is we don't talk about it. We kind mm-hmm. of like pop right over it. We move around it. We kind of name it, but we dance with that text for for all of it because there's a bunch. Of there's a lot of stake at purity culture. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of control at stake if we are to to loosen the grip on uh, human sexuality. But most of us, I mean, I honestly, I would, I don't know the stats, but I feel like the majority of humans have sex before marriage. I don't think I'm off by saying majority. I didn't say all. <laughs> But like, I feel like that's actually like, it's actually very, fairly normal. Even though we don't like to tell our kids that we like to set up a narrative, but like, maybe it's not as like, she's had sex before she was married. She's not an idiot. Like Ruth's a full grown woman. That's it. Like, she's not going to be surprised to see feet. Okay, even even there, let's pause there to remember that Ruth is a full-grown woman in this story who was married for 10 years, I think, did we decide in chapter one, before mm-hmm. she goes with Naomi. So 
that's worth noting what you just said, that, that she was married for 10 years. There are things that are not new to her or surprising to her. This isn't telling it. This isn't Naomi telling a child to go do this. Great, great thing to throw in. And to just throw in that, like with, with these conversations, we're poking at purity culture and to just notice how, like for us and for our listeners to notice how we feel in our bodies when we're poking at that, to notice the spectrum of possibilities where we might land with the morality of a situation and to allow some space to ask questions, to notice where we're getting defensive, to allow for some gray areas to perhaps be there. Particularly when we are people of privilege, there's um, some great quotes about how it People of privilege have the are the ones with the power to follow the rules no matter the cost. And that is not always true with people in every group. So to notice that to come into play. And we don't have to, in this podcast, we're never about giving our own version of right and wrong and saying this is what you should believe. We're just asking some questions about what's here and what it is to open up to what's here. Um, Jason, you were going to say something, I think. I'm trying to weigh, how do I weigh in here? Um, You guys are both smiling at me and no one can see that that big grin that you both gave me when I said that. Um, Because I I don't want to, I want, I don't want the male voice to be the one that's centered in this conversation. And I also don't want to bring up another trajectory of, of, what's going on here that takes away from the centrality of this moment. I do find it fascinating that what Ruth does here in the context of the story is never deemed as inappropriate, wrong, manipulative. It is, it is credited to her as doing and showing the right thing um it in a way it's boaz is the one that needs to have his eyes open ruth isn't the one that needs to have shame in this story similar to the judah and Tamar hold on can you repeat story. that because you said you're vo- you were wanting to limit your voice but that was a really good thing you just said that Boaz is the one who needs to have his eyes opened and Ruth doesn't need to experience shame. So to notice where this conversation and questions are a distraction and taking us in a different direction than the text is taking us. The text is taking us in the direction that Boaz is the one who needs his eyes opened. There is not shame for Ruth here. So whatever is happening, she is not shamed and he is the one whose eyes are opened through her actions Let's not lose that whatever other questions we ask. And I interrupted you. You weren't done. I just wanted to make sure we didn't miss that. No, I was done. That, 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 I'm, I'm glad you provided that follow-up. So it is, I mean, those, these questions are here. I just want to name something about the word feet. So it's, so it's Margela um, or Margela. I don't know where that put the emphasis actually. Um, so it's, it's here, but in 
in scripture, when we see the word feet, it's often used as a euphemism. So um, in 2 Samuel 11, David instructs Uriah to go be with Bathsheba. He's trying to cover his tracks on the fact that she got pregnant from, from being with him. And so, and when he says, when he tells Uriah to do that, he says, go down to your house and wash your feet. And that's directly in a conversation about him going to have sex. And so that seems to imply uh, something more here. In Exodus 4, there's that narrative that we don't know what to do with, with like God getting mad at Moses because he isn't circumcised. <laughs> and uh, and there's a foreskin thrown. <laughs> we might need an explicit filter on this episode. I mean, we're talking a lot about... <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, she throws a she throws a foreskin at Moses's quote unquote feet. Probably that it doesn't make sense for that to be feet there. Um, there are places in the Bible where foot doesn't seem to be okay. Foot. But that whole story has is like a whole nother. That's, whole, like there's a lot more questions just than feet. Tons of questions besides feet in that story. We notice we haven't done a podcast episode on that episode. Season six coming soon. <laughs> um. Meaning there are several places where foot can be translated as a euphemism, including here. Um, and whether or not it is foot or not a foot, the fact that she is going to this threshing floor and that she is waiting till he's done eating and drinking and that she's lying down next to him and uncovering any part of his body is sending a message. And so we don't have to know for sure whether foot means foot or not here to say she is doing something pretty bold to lay down next to him and uncover a part of his body that is intimate no matter what body part that is. And it's sending a message no matter what we do with that. And so to say, how is that action going to be the thing that opens his eyes? Why is that the thing that she's doing? Let's think about maybe that. I'll, I'll use that word I just used again, intimacy. If somebody is taking that intimate and bold action of laying down next to you and uncovering some part of you, how might, what might that do? How might that feel? How might that be connected to what they're wanting Boaz to see? It feels a lot to me like, I don't want to say mutual vulnerability, but there's definitely a vulnerability that Boaz is being forced into. It might not be the same vulnerability as Ruth. I don't want to pretend like the person in power simply because now they're laying exposed next to someone is suddenly in an equal position of vulnerability. But um, so if we're going to put an explicit filter on this one, we can go for it. But if somebody were to walk up to me and then drop all their clothing and I'm just standing there, I have all the power in the world because you're basically saying, here I am, now you choose. But if I'm also exposed, like now I'm, there's like a whole different dance we're doing there. Um, and it's not maybe the same. But it's definitely not like I'm in total control here. It's there's something different happening in the dynamic when I'm placed in a position of feeling 
vulnerable as well. So what is it for Ruth? Um, we're, we're maybe about ready to read the next set of verses, but I wonder about just noticing Naomi gives this instruction. We haven't technically gotten to her implementing this instruction yet. And Ruth says, all that you have said, I will do. What is she agreeing to? Well, I think that's the question I have. Does she know what she's getting herself into here or yes. does she not? I mean, and and if she does, then, I mean, she's a, she's agreeing to, yeah, put herself in that position to some, maybe somewhat assert her power um, by being the one that is going to uncover his feet, quote unquote. So she is asserting herself. Um, but also she's very clearly putting herself in a vulnerable position. And, you know, I, I I guess I just, it's hard to know what she knows in that moment. Maybe it's obvious. Maybe we should, maybe I shouldn't be even contemplating. I I feel like she knows because I just think of her as a grown woman. Right. Like I think about women who have been through divorces or have been widowed or, um, it doesn't have to just be women, but a person who's been through that, like you kind of, you have a pretty good clue about what's what it's pretty hard to be naive about the world. If you've had some like really hard stuff happen. And I feel like since Ruth, like she also knows like she didn't have, she didn't have children. Like there's a lot that's like in part of this, like, like there's a lot she knows about herself that I, for me, I just feel like she's a grown woman going in. I give her agency. I don't know if that's the correct thing to do, but in my head. Well, and if the, if the feet thing really is a euphemism for something else and, you know, and, and more, then I got a feeling she probably knows that. Whereas like, if it's just some like weird cultural thing with the feet and like a landowner, which is kind of my literal, you know, upbringing and how we read the Bible coming into play. Cause I always was wondering like, why would you want to cover the feet? Man, those ancient israelites were kind of weird you know like i but if we're like oh no this is about sex (laughs) which i don't know why i'm you know 41 years old and i'm like oh my gosh it's about sex like i can't believe that didn't hit me before then yeah then then she probably does have way more agency and, and understanding of what she's walking into and what she's participating in well and that's fair because like the reality is is like even alter makes a note in his translation where alter is like this ain't this is not about penis stop it <laughs> this is about what does he say alter says that it's about being at the place of his feet and so it's actually about um that she lies down at his feet as an expression of her lower social status in the subservient role of wives in relations to husbands in biblical society the uncovering may simply be an act to show that someone is present okay so maybe it is a cultural yeah so like there like that is particular but there is also enough scholarship that shows that feet are not just feet mm-hmm. which i think where that goes to is well, like we can we can we don't have to clean up the story and we don't have to have an answer and that's part of what we're doing with midrash is we can say we're not going to ignore the fact that a lot of people say this isn't a foot we don't have to pretend in order for this story to have value in the bible that it's not a foot because that's what we don't do here is we don't dance in a way to like make everything be clean because that's not what the Bible is. So this could very well be a highly sexually charged moment. 
and it would belong in the Bible. It could also be a real culturally charged moment about something related to submission and authority, and it would also belong in the Bible. We don't have to make things fit. We can allow them to be messy. We can wonder which it is, and we can see the questions in both. It is a space of noticing where you get uncomfortable, like for yourself, Mm -hmm. like really paying attention to the space where you're like, oh, I feel a certain way about that. Because like the more that I sit with it and the more that I play out the different scenarios of things, I'm like, well, what the hell? Like, what if it did? Like, what if they're rolling the the dice and Boaz is either going to want to have sex with her and be done? It's like, it's just a sex thing. Or he's going to want to marry her and be kinsman. Like, that's kind of, it feels like there's like, there's got to be some potential of risk there. But like, even if it just ends up being sex and she's agreed to it and she's like, I'm like, I'm open to that. Why do I have feels about that? Right. Like that's the stuff Like it's the questions for ourselves of like, oh, well, where does that come from? How does that change the story for me? And then who actually is the person that has the bigger choice to make? Because even in that one, it feels like it's still Boaz's choice to make this like whatever choice Boaz is going to make. Uh, yeah, well, I, it, it I noticed when you read that from Altered that I actually had stronger feels about it being. Fe- now that we started talking about it not being a foot, I was like, I, I like that better. Like I start, I was like, oh no, I'm like mad at Altered for saying that because I want. I was starting to feel like Ruth was this really empowered, like charged, but- like I don't know. There was something about that that felt really appealing to me. That now, if I think about her just laying at his feet, I'm like, oh, that's the one giving me a negative reaction. That's interesting. Like, what's that about? And so that's that's then my invitation to explore that. Why was I more comfortable with it being sexual than not? All of a sudden, <laughs> what does that say about me and my faith? And because maybe not even say about you and your faith, but like even just like the thing that you're wondering about, like why mm-hmm. I it is as weird as it is, it's actually a good place to kind of stop and evaluate like wh- what messaging, like what are you pulling forward? What are you pulling back? What's like your lived experience versus what's, what have you heard in a, a sermon or in a small group or in a book? Like, where have you pulled this from to then really kind of look at like, what well, it's a, it really is a great space to like stop and ask yourself just some of those questions to kind of understand that like we never read the text without those things. It's just sometimes we hit them harder and they bubble in ways that we don't pay attention to normally. Cause it gets, I feel like it gets a little less interesting after we <laughs> like, it's like this big build up to this moment. And then we're like, Oh, well, turns out didn't need to worry about that. <laughs> okay. I'm glad you said that and not me, because I didn't want to take away the, the charge of this moment and any like, you know, sexual autonomy going on or like, you know, all this really important stuff. But there's a part of me that I'm so glad you said like, okay, now that we've had this conversation about what was she really uncovering and did that lead to this intimate moment with them and did they have sex? And then eventually they decided that, yeah, being married is a good idea. Or is it just about this hierarchy of power and she's laying at his feet and acknowledging you have, you have power over my family and you can decide if we, you know, live or die. Um, And then part of me is like, okay, who cares? Because the point is he needed his eyes opened up to the fact that he's got a systemic job to do and he's not doing it. And Ruth and Naomi are saying, wake up, buddy. Like this thing has to work differently. Step up. And 
and I, I, I think, you know, and, and then it, sorry, I'm going to, I've preached a sermon based on what I was taught about the genealogy of Jesus, including the names of specific women, Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, Bathsheba, and eventually Mary. And the sermon goes, even despite the hardships and pain and the missteps and perversion of these circumstances, God had a plan in place to bring forth Messiah. And I'm starting to wonder, not even wondering anymore, I'm starting to think, wow, I think there's a way different sermon here about these women. And that the reason why they're in the genealogy is because they're the best examples of people saying, I'm sorry, that's not the way we do it. We need to do it this way. And you're off track. Get back on track. The heroes of these stories are the women, not what needed to be overcome is the women. Say that again, Jason. The hero of the stories found in the genealogy are the women. The women aren't the problem that needed to be overcome. What if the women are the ones, especially those women who are waking people up? What if they're not the problems or the in spite of, they are the ones who are tenaciously looking for where God is at work and actively engaging and co-creating a future um, when others are not? It makes it makes their story, um, and we're we're posting this likely if you're if you're re, if you're doing this with us in the time that we're posting these, it's going to come after Christmas and after the Advent season. But it makes me want to shape my entire Advent series at my church around these five women and telling their stories because they're the ones that are moving us towards Messiah because they're getting us in alignment with Shalom and with the systemic movement of what God is up to. Hmm. Love it. <laughs> well, and, and it, I think in part, that's why we're spending so much time with this book is that we haven't spent this much time in these stories. Ruth becomes that asterisk or afterthought in something like the genealogy of Jesus, which means we're telling the story in a short way Versus the let's really pause and see what her actions are here. Let's really pause and look at what Naomi's actions are here. Um, That tells a different story if we pause and if we look more closely. So I think we should look at the next section, um, which is verses 6 through 11. And she went down to the threshing floor and did all that her mother-in-law charged her. And Boaz ate and drank, and he was of good cheer. And he came and lay down at the edge of the stack of barley. And she came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. And it happened at midnight that the man trembled and twisted around, looked, and look, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. May you spread your wing over me, for you are a redeeming kinsman. And he said, Blessed are you to the Lord, my daughter. You have done better in your latest kindness than in the first, not going after the young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. Whatever you say, I will do for you. 
for all my people's town knows that you are a worthy woman. So that ends in verse 11. I think we talked about him being a man of valor in chapter two. And verse 11 has him saying to her, Eshet Hayil, for those who are familiar with that. um, Rachel Held Evans' uh, phrase that became popular from um, Proverbs 31. And what is it be? Proverbs 31 women that um, Eshet Hayil became a way to talk about women differently. Boaz looks at Ruth and says, Eshet Chayil, you are a woman of valor for what you have done here today. Let's make our way to that verse. Verse six and seven. She goes down to the the threshing floor. Boaz has eaten and drank. His heart is merry. In my translation, it says his heart was merry. And he lies down. And she comes and uncovers his feet. Verse 8. What's going on there? My translation says, It came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned, and behold, a woman was at his feet. What do you hear in that verse? I mean, I feel like either he's very surprised there's a woman laying next to him. He's surprised he doesn't know who the woman is laying next to him. Or like he's just really had a bad dream and startled awake and then there's somebody there. I don't know why we get all that detail about what he's doing in his sleep. Okay, that's that's worth noting, right? Why are we getting this detail in verse 8 about these words, about that this man is um, afraid and turning and behold, there's a woman. Like what's what's going on there? So the two words being used to describe him are harad, which is to tremble or quake or be afraid or terrified. To shudder is like the action of it. So he shudders. And then the other word is lafath, which is to twist or turn or grasp or bend. Um, So he's shuddering and twisting and turning at midnight. Do you see something there, Steph? <laughs> well, I, I'm with you that I think it's curious that we're given these words for him, like that we're, like, we're given this detail. It doesn't just say he woke up and there was a woman there. Like, why is it telling us these details of him, of him shuddering, of him twisting and turning? What's in that? I don't actually have an answer. I just have a noticing of, I'm always interested in the places in the Bible where we're given detail and not given detail. Because what I think about is I think about the precious space of a scroll before we have modern technology and computers where we can put as many words as we want in a scroll. People are taking oral tradition and choosing their words carefully that they write down because it has to be handwritten and rewritten. And we'll, and in that we'll be have like huge swaths of years where we're told nothing, and then we'll have stories where we have all this detail or detail about particular places. So it doesn't tell us any detail about what the threshing floor looked like. It didn't tell us like there's a, lots of details that's not telling us. It's choosing to tell us that the man was trembling and and twisting. So what's there? Is it maybe there's nothing there? That's totally maybe fine. Just pausing. Maybe he was surprised. Maybe not all men are surprised when they wake up and find a woman laying there. <laughs> okay. okay, so 
maybe context can help us a little bit and then just some imagination can help us. So later on, we're going to realize that there's not supposed to be a woman on the threshing floor and he's going to send her away before the morning comes. So no one recognizes her. He's going to give her some wheat to take back or some barley to take back to her mother-in-law. So the startle, the, the reason why he's shocked that it's a woman could be that like, he just can't imagine that there's a woman there. Right. Um, because it just shouldn't happen. I think, so if I'm playing out, if I'm just like closing my eyes and I'm trying to picture this thing, so all these guys are working their tails off. They're all doing this really hard, that concentrated thing. And they're exhausted at the end of the day. They just had a good meal. They had something to drink. They're all in a good mood. And they're just crashing on the floor, on the bon- on the piles of barley or whatever. And they're, they're just ready to go to sleep. And there's probably a lot of them. And they're all just kind of hanging out. And to have, you know, someone you know, grab the blanket off your feet or to bump someone like no big deal. And, you know, and so what happens? He wakes up in the night because he was stirring and boom. Oh my gosh. It's not one of the guys laying down there who grabbed my blanket. It's this woman and there's an intention here. So then what's the stirring all about? I almost wonder if that's like a way of saying like, um, something spiritually metaphysically was happening in him that was preparing him for the moment. Maybe that's like a, maybe that's way reading into it because he could have just woken up from a bad dream and been startled, or he could have just been cold because the blanket got pulled off his feet. And so he was trembling like, um, or it could be that like there was something in, in the, in the air that was, there was, this was a moment right? This was a moment and it was about to happen. Is he going to, is he going to be ready for it? And it's almost like the writer saying his body somatically was getting him ready for this moment. And, you know, just not just mentally, but physically. And, and then there, there's a woman there and it's like, Whoa, okay. What's going on. That makes me think about how we, when we think of significant moments in our lives or spiritually significant moments in our lives, we tend to want to frame them as mountaintop experiences where everything feels good, but the trajectory is about to shift and Boaz is feeling uncomfortable. And so maybe there's something there to like, sometimes that waking up is uncomfortable. Sometimes that sort of being startled awake of like, of noticing something for the first time of having God point you in a new direction can sometimes feel like fear and grasping and twisting, which is what's going on. And somatically for him, as he wakes up and behold, Ruth is there. This is an uncomfortable moment, whether whatever, whether that uncomfort is from what he sees or from what he's experiencing in his sleep, he's having an uncomfortable moment and sees Ruth. What is, how do we leave room for that discomfort in our own lives and in the story? I think the Christian experience that I've been a part of for the longest time has focused so much on that moment where we are aware of God's love and like the unconditional nature of it and the the invitation to be in relationship to God. And we focus on that moment. And that moment for people tends to be a fairly euphoric, happy, exciting, joyous moment to realize that God loves you that God has gone to the ends of the earth and back for you and that you are part of this dynamic, beautiful family that's moving towards resurrection and hope. I mean, that is great. What I don't think 
Christianity talks a lot about is, okay, you've been a part of this for a while. And I am going to turn you in a new direction because you've gotten comfortable, you've gotten uh, safe, and now I want you to get uncomfortable again. We don't talk about that very much in the church. And yet that's, I think, what it actually means to be a person of faith, to be a follower of Christ is to take up your cross daily and follow after Jesus, who, you know, is upsetting the systems that are marginalizing and oppressing. If you're suddenly waking up and recognizing that you're a part of a system that is off kilter and is doing more harm than good, and you got to now go in a new direction, that's not euphoric. That's not full of joy and excitement and, oh, I'm so glad God loves me. That's, are you serious? Like, that's super uncomfortable. It's super uncomfortable to recognize that the faith you've been living is actually the unhealthy version of it. And God is trying to point you in a new direction. And I would twist and turn and be anxious and not want to change because I like this comfortable path that I'm on. I like the decision that I made 20 years ago and how my boat's never gotten rocked since. Um, you're telling me that I'm I'm off or that I have a different responsibility? No, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to twist and turn quite a bit. Um, I'm not ready for that. You know, we spent some time thinking about um, what was a euphemism and not in the first five verses and to say whatever it was, whether she is at his feet or whether it's something more that she is pushing Boaz to see something uncomfortable about himself. And that, that vulnerability of that moment is, is a different kind of vulnerability to say like, Oh, I've got a responsibility to take on here. It's different than just like, Oh, look, there's a girl. <laughs> like that, that those feelings perhaps are helping us sense something about the moment that is deeper. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Lisa? Do you make um, anything of it? Well, I just think there's a tension of like, when are we supposed to notice something and do it? And when do we come awake to it? And so like, in some ways, like, I don't, I does is Boaz supposed to look at her and know immediately he's like, does he volunteer for it off the bat? Like, I don't know how many people are like, like he's not the only kinsman redeemer potential. Like multiple people could pretend like there's not just a, there could be some. So like, I'm curious, like, does everybody like sign up? Like, I'll, I'll kinsman redeemer that one. Or, or you like, I think ideally you want somebody to notice it, like to make the story idyllic would mean that Boaz would have sensed it, known it, and sought to redeem it prior to this moment. But it's not idyllic. It's one of those stories that feels much more like life and that like it actually takes the people who are in the most vulnerable, oppressed state to be the ones to actually push themselves into an even greater state of vulnerability and request to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. which I wish wasn't true. And, but I know that that is true. Like, and I think also given our conversation about like when helping her, it's like, we can't be over helper. 
I like to for him to presume that he should be the kinsman redeemer might probably be offensive in some way from like in my reading of it. Like if I put on a lens, I'd be like, hmm, well, that was kind of assumptive. Maybe they'd be fine. <laughs> so I guess it's interesting that this kind of this story has a little bit of edge and twist and turn to all of it that you have to kind of again evaluate like what what makes you feel certain ways. I think Jason, with what you were bringing, I'm like, well, it actually speaks a lot to him that he literally. <laughs> Like asked the question, who are you? And then was like, okay, got it. Like it, Boaz does not need like a couple of weeks to think about it. Or like he pretty quickly gets woken up out of his sleep and is like, all right. All right. I'll take action. And he names like, I mean, we didn't read yeah. this verse yet. He names like, all right, here's the, here's the path. Like there's somebody else. It's not just me. Like let's. One of the things that I've noticed about Jesus and thought about a lot over the years is his capacity to be interrupted and respond well, because that is not true of me. (laughs) So like, I think about that, like, that's my take on the story of like the men, the friends lowering their, their paralyzed friend through the roof is that Jesus was in the middle of like a sermon. And all of a sudden he had to respond to someone being lowered through the roof. Like, how do I do when that happens to me? Do I feel, do I respond compassionately to the person who was lowered through the roof? Or am I like, Hey, glad you're here. Hang on till I'm done with this. I'm already in the middle of something that is good. So when I finish this, then I will care for you. Like Boaz is in the middle of the threshing season. He's in the middle of, he's already had people gleaning his field. Like he's doing a lot of good. He's doing a lot of action. Like what is his capacity to be interrupted and surprised and respond? He does better than I do. Or I would do, I think, where he's he like he's uncomfortable, but he wakes up really fast and he responds really fast. He sees the good. He moves towards it. He's willing to upend his life in a moment. Um, and I tend not to be, I, I tend to say like, yeah, okay, let's plan that out for next year (laughs) or next month versus it's the middle of the night and I see it right away and I'm going to respond right away. Uh, That's really hard. (laughs) Speaks well of Boaz. Thank you for listening to this episode, part eight of our exploration of the book of Ruth. We look forward to being back with you next week in your podcast feed as we will be finishing chapter three in Ruth part nine.